to the little book of Jonah. Jonah, prophet, in the Old Testament. And we're going to read at Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Let's stop there and ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you that we can come to this book, this book which you have inspired and preserved here in the King James Version, that we can hold in our hands, we can read it, and we can know the thoughts of God. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit is willing to take these words and teach them unto us, to show us the things of Christ, to, to reveal to our hearts what it means to trust in you and to walk with you. We thank you, Lord, that there are a number in this room who have given their heart and life to the Savior. They're born again, and they belong to the family of God. We thank you for that. But we pray, Father, that if someone has come this way, a young person or an adult, someone who has perhaps been religious but never trusted in the Savior, that tonight might be the night that they yield themselves fully to you. We know, Lord, you're willing to save unto the uttermost all who will put their faith and trust in you. The Lord Jesus Christ has gone to the cross of Calvary to pay the sin debt of every single one of us. The way is open. The gift of eternal life is available if we will receive it. The only thing that stands in the way of it is our proud and stubborn heart. We pray, Father, that, that there would be no one under the sound of your word this evening that would turn away from that salvation. But help us, Father, to enter into it, to receive it, to have the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in us by your spirit, and then to live and grow in grace, to serve you until you come. We pray you'll strengthen us for that. We know that you've designed meetings just like this to encourage and strengthen us in your word. We pray that you'll do that very thing for each one that's gathered here tonight. And we ask it all in our wonderful Savior's name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it for his sake. Amen. We come to the little book of Jonah. I believe the Lord has directed us here for a few studies, and we won't get too far this evening. We just want to introduce a few things, but many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah. It's a very short book, only four chapters, and we've heard the story of Jonah since we were little children. And yet, there are some things here that I believe delve into the very issues that we face right here in the last days, issues of living for the Lord and being the testimony that God has called us to be, that we can glean from this little book. There's, there's a lot here. But we want to begin by looking at, at the prophet Jonah himself. If you'll turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 14, turn back to 2 Kings chapter 14, we'll see there that Jonah was from Gath-Hefer. 2 Kings 14, and look with me there at verse 25.
Well, we can read at verse 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. This is, by the way, Jeroboam the second. There are two Jeroboams that were kings of Israel, and this is the second one. He began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years. Had a long reign. And, but he wasn't a good king in many ways. Verse 24 says, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that was Jeroboam the first, who made Israel to sin. But notice verse 25. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah. So Jonah was a prophet during the days of Jeroboam the second. And he prophesied regarding the, the, uh, the blessing of Israel, even though they had a wicked king. God saw that their enemies were great and that they were under a great amount of pressure from the countries round about them. And, and, and Jonah was able to prophesy uh, that they would be able to restore their coast in a large measure. And uh, he, that was spoken by the hand of the servant Jonah. So he prophesied these things, and they came to pass. God was able to deliver his people, even with a wicked king in the palace, to deliver his people through this wicked king. And the Lord is able to do that kind of thing. And it says, through the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. Now, Gath-Hefer was a town that was located near Nazareth uh, and in Galilee. And so Jonah comes from that area of Israel. He prophesied, he prophesied in the northern tribes during the reign of Jeroboam II. And on the basis of his prophecies, Jeroboam was able to recover territory extending from the entering of Hamath, which is northern Syria, all the way to what the Bible says here is the river of the wilderness, which was the Jordan Valley above the Dead Sea. And so this large area was able to be restored to Israel, and they had a very prosperous time, even though, even though they had, had a wicked person in the palace. And so this is the way the Lord works sometimes. But the, liberal, the liberals attack Jonah and the book of Jonah mercilessly. Here's one example. Charles Dodd, who was the general director of the New English Bible Translation, wrote, when the Gospel of Matthew uses the story of Jonah as a symbol of the resurrection from the dead, it is not very far from the original intention of the myth. He calls the whole story of Jonah a myth. And the, this was the person who led one of the, one of the modern versions, uh, translations, the New English Bible translation. And that's, that's pretty typical across all the commentators and, uh, and, the, uh, and, and the, uh, uh, those who write about the, the Bible. They... Uh, they take this view that Jonah was, was surely a myth. Another example, uh, in the notes on the new Oxford Annotated Bible, this was edi edited by Bruce, Bruce Metzger and Herbert May, and in the new Oxford Annotated Bible, it says the book of Jonah is a didactic, didactic narrative. Well, didactic means teaching, so it's a teaching narrative which has taken older material from the realm of popular legend and put it to a new, more consequential use. So a myth, a popular legend, that's the, that's the majority view among people who write about the Bible, people who are translating these other versions of the Bible and many others. But you'd only have to turn to Matthew chapter 12 to find out they're wrong. If you'll turn there with me, Matthew chapter 12, 
where a very famous Bible commentator gives a different opinion. Matthew chapter 12. And look with me at verse 39. Well, let's start at 38. Matthew 12 and verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered, Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the Lord Jesus Christ himself says that Jonah was, was fact, not fiction. Jonah was not legend or myth. Jonah was a re recorded history, incredible though it may seem to us today. Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. That's what the Lord said. Just as he was literally in the whale's belly three days and three nights. So the Son of Man shall literally be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you're going to say that Jonah's experience was myth or legend, then you have to say that the three days and three nights of the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart of the earth, his whole death, burial, and resurrection is a myth as well or a legend. And so we have it on the Lord's authority that Jonah's story is true. And it's, isn't it interesting that the most incredible thing that we read in Jonah, which is that he could be three days and three nights in the whale's belly and then be spit up back up onto land afterwards, that whole thing is, is the one thing that the Lord Jesus uh, uses here as a, as a, to reference it as a fact. The one thing that's most incredible is the thing the Lord references as a fact right here. And so, and, and so we know that that uh, we can depend upon it. Also, we want to think a little bit about the city of Nineveh itself. I'd like for you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is where we first read about the city of Nineveh. It's a very ancient city. It was founded on the Tigris River by a man named Asher in the time of Nimrod in the Tower of Babel. Look with me at Genesis 10 and verse 8. Genesis 10 and verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Calne in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher. This is the person that founded the city of Nineveh. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Calah. And reason between Nineveh and Calah, the same as a great city. This was 500 years, at least, before Jonah came along. 500 years before, before Jonah came along, this city was built. And it was a prosperous city from the very beginning. Um, Jonah's day, in Jonah's day, it had become a city so great that we read in Jonah chapter 3 that it was three days' journey to cross the city. It took three days, a person walking across the city to get across it. That's how large it was. Uh, the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus said that Nineveh was 21 miles long and nine miles wide and 54 miles in circumference. That's a big city. Its walls were 100 feet high and wide enough for three chariots to drive, to drive side by side around it. 
Water was brought into the city through canals and aqueducts from as far away as 25 miles. And the walled city included inside it pastures for cattle and large, beautiful parks and gardens. It was an amazing place. We read, we read that it had 120,000 little small children in it. That's told to us right in the book of Jonah. 120,000 souls that could not discern between their right hand and their left hand. And that's, that's children, right? It's little small children because children learn their right and left hand at pretty early age. And so probably it could have had as many as a million souls living in this city. It was a huge place, tremendous place. And this city was controlled by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians made their capital at Nineveh, and that Assyrian Empire began 500 years even before Jonah's day, uh, somewhere around 1265 B.C., and the Assyrian kings built elaborate palaces decorated with gold and silver, precious stones, rare woods, ivory, alabaster, glazed bricks, and bronze. Tremendously beautiful places. They have, archaeologists have, have dug up many of these, many of these uh, ancient ruins of Nineveh. And one palace, Sennacherib's palace, was 1,680 feet long. That's huge. And 810 feet wide. Just his palace had 60 different courts in it and a number of halls and other things, but it was a huge place. And the Assyrians were not illiterate. They were literate people and built uh, multilingual libraries. Archaeologists have unearthed a collection of 25,000 stone tablets with writings on them of all kinds of histories and all kinds of uh, business adventures and everything that they did in their society. And they found about 25,000 of those stone tablets from, their, from the ruins of the libraries there at Nineveh. But the Ninevites and the Assyrians were famous in another way. They were famous for their deceit and their cruelty. They were very cruel. We have records from, from archaeological records that show that, where they would picture on their uh, reliefs that they would prepare and carve out of stone or press into metal how their soldiers operated. And it is very, it's very uh, aggressive and very cruel. Uh, Nahum, if you just turn over, we were at the book of Jonah. If we go back there and turn over just a few more pages to, to Nahum, uh, you'll see go past Micah and come to Nahum. The whole little prophecy of Nahum is about the, the city of Nineveh. It's the burden of Nineveh, we read in verse 1. And the Lord is proclaiming his destruction is coming to this city. Uh, this is about 120 years after Jonah would have prophesied. So this is later on toward the end of the Assyrian Empire and their wickedness had, had increased and gotten to the point where the Lord was going to bring tremendous destruction and, and bring in the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrian Empire. But if you look at chapter 3 and verse 1 of Nahum, it says, Woe to the bloody city. That's what God calls it, the bloody city. And for good reason. It's full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horsemen lifted up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. That's their army. And there's a multitude of slain, a multitude of slain, and a great number of carcasses. And there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. 
This is actually pictured in reliefs that have been dug up by archaeologists that show the Assyrian soldiers uh, uh, decapitating their prisoners and piling the heads up in pyramids of, of decapitated heads and stumbling. It actually shows them rocking over corpses that have been decapitated while they're building these pyramids of, of these heads that were cut off. They were very, very cruel and vindictive, uh, aggressive and murderously vindictive people. Um, and they had a, a, a huge and successful war machine. The cities that resisted the Assyrians were subjected to terrible cruelty. They skinned captives alive, they burned them alive, they impaled them on stakes, they nailed them to walls, decapitated them and made pyramids out of the heads. So they, they were very ruthless and cruel people. Now, other, other societies have done some of the same things in, in a smaller way, but Assyria was such a large, such a large and powerful kingdom uh, that they were able to just swallow up anybody that resisted them. And, of course, they, they published this cruelty on their uh, stonework and on their, on their metalwork, and they, they published it on their big slabs that went around their city walls. They published these deeds of theirs to strike fear into the heart of anybody who had the idea, oh, we're, we're not going we're gonna to resist the Assyrians. We're not going to go along with them. So they published that cruelty. They, they were proud of it, and they published it out to scare anybody who thought they might want to do differently. So this is the kind of place that Jonah was directed to go to. Nineveh had a, a thriving economy because their position on the Tigris River was a major trade route from Mesopotamia in the east to Anatolia in the west. It was very prosperous from its earliest days. But they also were, were uh, conquerors. They would go out and take everything that, that a nation or another, another group of people had, they would carry it all back uh, to enrich their own kings. And their kings lived in the lap of luxury, waited on by armies of servants. But Nineveh was a religious place too. They weren't, they weren't uh, you know, uh, without religion, but they were devoted to idolatry and witchcraft. You're here in Nahum, look at, look at uh, verse 4 again of chapter 3. It says, because of, the mul because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. So the Lord says they were devoted to idolatry and to witchcraft. And they had a, they had a huge religious, uh, religious uh, group of, of uh, priests and, and those who took care of all their different, uh, their different uh, gods that they worshipped. One of their gods was their founder, Asher. And he was actually worshipped as a chief god and continued to be worshipped all the way up until the fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C. But they worshipped a number of other gods as well. They weren't uh, exclusive. They had all kinds of gods. They had Dagon, the fish-headed god. They worshipped Nisroch, the eagle-headed god. And they worshipped Baal, which is also Baal. And we read about Baal in the Bible. And many others. So they had all this religion going on, but it wasn't the true religion. It was false religion. So they were cruel and, the, and religious at the same time. Now Jonah, Jonah, going back to Jonah, we read in, in chapter 1 there, in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
So the Lord wanted this city to know that he was, he was displeased. He was angry with them. He was not happy with them. Their wickedness had come up before him, and he wanted them to know that the God of heaven was going to do something about it. And so he gave the job to Jonah. Jonah was preaching there in the northern kingdom, and he cared about Israel, and he was trying to help Israel come back to the Lord. And he was, he was, he was working there, but the Lord wanted him to go to this heathen nation, this Gentile nation, and, and preach there. And Jonah wasn't willing to go. There are a number of lessons in this book of Jonah, and we're going to try to get to some of them, but let's think just in general about the lessons we can pick up from this little book. One thing we learn is, is lessons about the Lord. You see how the Lord handled Jonah through all this, and the Lord worked in his life as well as in the life of this city of Nineveh that he wanted to reach with the truth. And we learn that the Lord is a God of all nations. He cares about every single nation. Not just the one we're in or the one that's in Israel, but every single nation, the Lord cares about them. And he's trying to reach them with the gospel message, sending missionaries and doing what he can do through the people that he has in the world to get the message out to all nations. He cares. And sometimes we might look at some of the nations of the world and think, well, you know, they're so poor. What can, what can they really contribute or what importance are they? Or, or they're so heathen, they're so idolatrous and follow a false god. And, and how can they be of any, of any interest to us or to the Lord? But he does care. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary for every single man, woman, boy, and girl in the entire world. He does care about them. And we need to care the way the Lord does. Another lesson we learn about the Lord is he desires to save all men. Everyone is part of his, part of his salvate, offer of salvation. When he's the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so that's God's desire in his heart and his salvation plan. But another thing we learn is that the Lord will chasten his children when they disobey him. Jonah learned that, didn't he? And we'll see that in more detail. But he chastens his children when they disobey him. The Lord will not let Christians sin successfully. If we break with the Lord and his clear call in our life, and we don't do what he's given us to do, we go some other direction, the Lord will swallow us up like he did with Jonah. He'll bring circumstances that swallow us up to teach us that we're on the wrong track. If we don't have any chastisement, then we should ask ourselves, do we really know the Lord? If we can sin and continue to sin and there's no consequence, that's a sign that we don't know the Lord at all. And we're just fooling ourselves about our relationship to him because the Lord definitely spanks his children. But we also learn that the Lord is kind. He's merciful and he's patient. We see that in the story of Jonah. Kind and merciful and patient. And we also learn that he's in control of nature. He controls everything. Plants that grow, he controls the oceans, he controls the rain that falls, he controls storms, he controls everything about the world that he's made. He controls it. But there's some lessons about Jonah in this little book too. Jonah was not altogether what the Lord wanted him to be. In fact, he was unmerciful and selfish and narrow-minded. That was Jonah. And, and you wonder, who wrote the book of Jonah? The Bible doesn't record the author in this book. But I think it was probably Jonah himself. And the reason I think that is the Lord wouldn't, the, the Lord himself is very kind and he passes over a lot of the failures of his people without even mentioning them. But here we get Jonah's failure laid out in plain, in plain sight. 
at every turn, everything about him. And I only think only a repentant Jonah, who had gotten right with God later on, could write about himself like this. I mean, I'd be surprised if this was written by anybody except Jonah himself, even though we don't have it directly recorded. But, but, but Jonah learned some things about himself. He was kind of like the Pharisees of the Lord's day, except he was a saved man, but he had the same nature, the same flesh nature that you and I have, like the Pharisees of the Lord's day. Uh, he, was, uh, he was focused on his own, his own view of things, and he couldn't see beyond that to care about anybody else. He cared for himself and for Israel, but no one else, no one else. And he especially was against this city of Nineveh and the Assyrians for their cruelty because they had interacted with Israel already many times and their cruelty was on display. And Jonah hated these people. He hated what they stood for and what they believed and the way they acted and all of that. He didn't have any, any interest in going to Nineveh. This is also a warning. The book of Jonah is a warning to us as the Lord's people not to be hard-hearted and uncaring. You know, we can get into the same frame of mind that Jonah was in and see our church family, which we really appreciate, and our local church where we come and go uh, as, a, as a blessing. And, and we, can, we can be focused on helping it to, to thrive and be what it ought to be. But we can get sidetracked from the fact that the Lord wants us to go out from here with a caring heart to people that don't know him, to people that might spit in our face or, or, or curse at us or, or not, not respond to us the way we'd like to, for them to. And, and we're called to go. What did the Lord Jesus himself say? Go ye, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Not gather in the church alone and speak to yourselves about the gospel, but go into the world and preach the gospel. We do have to come together. We have to be in these meetings. We have to be taught by God. We need to encourage one another. But we need to encourage one another to do what God's called us to do. It's not in here. It's out there. And those people that are out there are not very friendly sometimes. And we might get the idea that, well, we don't really want to get involved in that. We don't want to be in a confrontation with anybody. We, if they want to trust God, that's fine. And, you know, if somebody mentions the Lord, then maybe we'll say a little something. But we're never going to bring it up. We're never going to be the one who steps forward and says, do you know the Lord is your Savior? Are, are, you, are you involved in a church anywhere? Are you, do you ever read God's Word? Do you ever think about what the Bible says? You know, we can do things like that as the Lord opens doors of opportunity. But Jonah was not interested in going where the Lord wanted him to go. I think we can get like that. We can get kind of hard-hearted and uncaring when, it turn, when, when it's somebody outside our family or outside our church family. And we can say, well, they're, they're doing their thing. You know, they're going to have to answer to God. That's the way Jonah felt about the Ninevites. He wasn't interested in trying to go there and say anything to them. Anyway, it's a picture of Israel as a whole because that's the way the nation was. And the Lord wanted Israel. He told Israel he wanted them to be a, a soil sample, as it were, of the, of the entire human race to see people could see what God would do with this small nation. And they would be a light to all the other nations. That's what the Lord told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. He said, you'd be a blessing to all the nations of the world. All nations will be blessed in you. That's what he told Abraham. And he intended for Israel to be that kind of a lighthouse and that kind, of, that kind of testimony. But they weren't. They weren't. And so the Lord had to deal with them about that. 
Jonah resisted the call of God. We see that in the lives of, of our, in our own lives also. Sometimes we see us resisting God's call. But he finally got his heart right about that and confessed his sin and repented and went. He did what the Lord called him to do after the Lord sent some trials. But even after that, he still carried the baggage of his previous attitude about things. We see that all the way right to the end of the book of Jonah, right to the very end. He still has a problem with his attitude about things. And Jonah had a bad attitude about the will of God. He had a bad attitude about the word of God, what God told him to do and what he was supposed to do with the word that God gave him to preach. And he had a bad attitude about the circumstances when they, when they changed in front of him. He had a bad attitude about the Gentile nations. Jonah had a bad attitude. Do you ever have a bad attitude? No, of course not. But I do. I do sometimes. And I hate it in myself. But I see it in myself. And I have to bring myself up in front of that mirror and give myself a good talking to. And say, look, the Lord has saved you. He's given you something to do for his glory. What is the problem with your attitude? Just do what the Lord's given you to do. Do what he's called you to do. Reach out to those people around you. Those children that you deal with in the classroom that sometimes are so frustrating and so hard to reach, it seems like, and so dull of hearing of spiritual things. You, you go ahead and do what I've called you to do. You preach. You tell them. You help them. You reach out to them and you love them. You love them for me. You love them for me. And I will work in that situation and I will work on those hearts and some of them, some of them will, will hear it. Some of them will hear it. Do we ever resist God's call? Yes, we do. We, we, can, we need to do what God's given us to do. Jonah is a person who teaches us about uh, someone who cares more for his personal comfort and convenience than for the souls around him. You know, we can get into a pattern where we have our little thing we do for God, and then we have our personal things that we do for ourselves and our own family, and we can get into a little, a little pattern of that where we're, we're, not utilize, we're not letting the Lord utilize us the way he intends. We can be so concerned about our own personal comfort and convenience and how we like things to be and how we arrange our day and how we're going to do this and that and the other thing so that all the time is filled up. And the time that we should be spending studying God's word and then reaching out with it to those who are lost around us Somehow that never takes place. Somehow that's not going on. Our own personal comfort and convenience can overrule the will of God in our life. Uh, that, that's pictured in Jonah. Uh, Jonah. Jonah lost out a lot of things when he turned away from the will of God in his life. But this, this uh, little book of Jonah also teaches about our Savior. There are lessons about the Lord Jesus Christ in this little book. Because the law... The law, uh, books of the law, the books of the Psalms, the books of the prophets, including Jonah, they all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, we looked in Matthew chapter 12, and we saw that the main lesson from Jonah was given by the Lord himself, that his death, burial, and resurrection are pictured in what happened to Jonah. Jonah is assigned to Israel. His death and burial for three days and his resurrection are pictured in, in this. And the Lord said that. Jonah's death delivered the sailors that were in the boat with him. We see this in chapter 1. Jonah's death delivered the sailors that were in the boat. And the death of the Lord Jesus Christ delivered humanity, mankind, 
made it possible for people to actually get saved and to have the life of God and be delivered from a, a, an eternity in hell. Jonah's death delivered those sailors and the death of the Savior delivered mankind. When Jonah turned against the Lord, he lost, he lost some things. He lost some things, and we're going to see them in this first chapter. But we're not going to be able to get into it much further than that this evening. But look with me again at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. It begins this way. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. And that is the beginning. That is the beginning of our relationship with the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the word of the Lord was to do something specific. It came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, Jonah's name means a dove. And there are lots of things to say about that we'll have to save for, for later. But his father's name, Amittai, is an interesting name. Amittai means truth. It means trustworthiness. And no doubt because he was a man who was truthful and trustworthy. But Jonah, Jonah was learning those lessons himself. Just because his father, Amittai, was truthful and trustworthy didn't mean Jonah had those qualities yet. He was saved. He was a man who believed God. He was a man who preached the word of God, but he didn't have the attitude of God toward others. Jonah's father's name was Amittai. Jonah's name was Dove. You remember about Noah and the dove back in Genesis where we read about the dove for the first place in the Bible. What did, what did uh, Noah do with the dove? He sent it out three times out of the ark, didn't he? The first time he sent it out, it came right back. It didn't find any place to land, so it came right back to him. The second time he sent the dove out, it came back with an olive branch plucked off in its mouth, in its beak. And so jo uh, Noah knew then that the the floods were receding and some of the plants were beginning to, beginning to grow back up again. And then the third time he sent the dove out, it didn't come back. And so that pictures how the, the dove has is is, is always been, since that time, a symbol, of, a symbol of peace, a symbol of reconciliation. God was bringing Noah and all the, those who were in the ark through the flood. And it was, it was a sign, the sign that the dove brought back was a sign that all of the, the, the judgment of God was, was finished and the, the world had been destroyed by the flood and, and God was going to bring those who were in the ark safely through. All a picture of our salvation and the Savior, the safety we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's bringing us through. And that dove was a symbol, a symbol that that reconciliation was completed, that was, that was going, to be, going to be done, that Noah and his family would be able to get off of that ark and go back into a life on the world that God had cleansed. And that's exactly what the Lord's doing for us. But, but Jonah's name means a dove. And the Lord's trying to send him out too. <laughs> but he won't go. He won't fly. He actually flies all right, but he flies the wrong way. And we read that in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Jonah had no interest in that whatsoever. Go to that great city and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. That's the opposite direction. From the presence of the Lord. That's what he's running from. Running away from the presence of the Lord. Well, how can you get away from the presence of the Lord? Isn't the Lord everywhere? And of course he is. But Jonah's enjoyment of the presence of the Lord is what he's running from. He's running out of the Lord's will to do his own thing. You ever run out of the Lord's will to do your own thing? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me plenty of times. 
I have a plan, and I'm going this way, Lord. Oh, oh, you want me to go that way, but I'm going this way because I think that's going to be better. I don't want to go to talk to those people you want me to talk to. I don't want to do that because I don't like the way they live, and I just wish you would destroy them because that's what they deserve. That's how Jonah felt, and that's in the heart of every single one of us. Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And notice how convenient it all was. He went down to Joppa, and what did he find when he got to Joppa? There's a boat. There's a ship. It's already ready to go where I want to go. How convenient. That was convenient, wasn't it? And then he paid the fare thereof. He had enough money in his pocket to pay for the trip. And that was convenient. And he went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Bible tells us that he went down into the boat and went to sleep later on in this chapter. So one thing we can learn right from this, and we'll have to close with this, but one thing we can learn from the very beginning of Jonah's experience is that when we choose a direction away from the Lord, sometimes the circumstances seem to line up perfectly. Jonah was thinking, hey, this must be okay. There's a ship here in Joppa ready to take me where I want to go. I could have gotten here and there wasn't a ship, so everything's working out great. I've got enough money to pay for the ship and the trip. That must be all part of the plan. It's all, all working great. But when the finances and the, and the transportation and everything's great, and Jonah's just relaxed. He goes down into the ship, and as we read later on, he's sound asleep in the ship. So, so much relaxing and sound asleep that the storm doesn't bother him for a while. When everything seems to be going okay, does that mean the Lord is okay with what I'm doing? Can I take comfort in the fact that everything seems to be going all right, that my plan's going to work out the way I thought it would? No, we can't take that comfort. The Lord is very merciful and kind, very merciful and kind. And he'll let us go a certain distance in the direction we've chosen. He'll let us go a little way that way just to let us see what it's going to be like. Let us see the consequences of our choices. And the Lord is so good about that. He does that because he loves us. Just like we do with our children. We give them some freedom and we see if they can handle it. We let them go a certain distance. And when they get into a mess, we say, well, we've learned something here, haven't we? This didn't work out too well, did it? We're going to go back and go God's way. How about that? And so we, can, we can't take any comfort from smooth circumstances just because everything seems to be going our way that God's going to bless our choice. That's something we can pick up right at the very beginning of this. And we're going to see more, more things, many more things, I believe, as, as we make our way through this book of Jonah. We've set the stage, and we've looked at an introduction. We've seen what Jonah, who Jonah is and where he comes from. We've seen what this great city of Nineveh is and who it represented, the Assyrian Empire. And we've seen what Jonah has decided to do against what God told him. That's a place to stop. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the things we've been able to see as we glance into the first few verses of this little book, we know that you have authored this word, perhaps through Jonah himself, to give it to us so that we could learn something about ourselves and the call that you placed on our life. Whatever we do, whatever our, our vocation or avocation might be, we have a call on our heart as your people to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to teach people what it means to trust God and to care about them enough to tell them what you have told us. We pray that you'll help us, Lord, to not get settled down in a routine that is contrary to your purpose. 
Help us not to choose a direction away from your call in our life, but give us exactly what you would have us to do and be and say, and open the door in the direction of your will so that we can do it with a happy heart. We pray you'll bless us, Lord, that we might see fruit, that your spirit would work in those that we're, we're, we're praying for and laboring toward, that they would come to know you, and that Christians that are, are off the track might come back and get on the right way with you. And we pray, Father, that you'll strengthen us in these things. We're so grateful for your love for us. We pray you'll bless us. And give, us give us that comfort and strength of knowing that we're walking with you and doing your will. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.